Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And good morning again, church. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, as we continue our series today, Rescued and Redeemed. We are walking through the book of Exodus, looking at every epic story uh, that we see as God redeems and rescues his people from slavery and leads them to a new life as followers of him. And uh, we're going to be skipping around a good bit today. As you can tell, we're covering uh, several chapters, and so we're going to be moving fast. So don't, it's okay if you can't uh, flip through the pages quickly. That's one reason we have scripture on the screens for you, so you can read along as well that way. But let me uh, pray for us, and don't forget at the end of the service today uh, is our annual budget presentation. Uh, so every year we present the budget uh, today after the service. Uh, this will be the 2023 budget. And then we will vote on that budget two weeks from today at the end of that service. But I'll give you more details about that uh, at the end. But for now, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless his word as we get into Exodus 25 through 29 today. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we are so thankful that we get to be here with you and to worship, Lord, to, to walk in community and community groups Lord, to be equipped to go and live our lives as a faithful witness for you in this world, Lord. This is why we gather. We gather to do those things. And Lord, in this moment, in this worship service, I pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Lord, that your word would be the ultimate authority in this place. and That every word that comes into our ears would be from you. That you would speak to our hearts and truly transform who we are. Shape us and mold us into the people, the people of God you want us to be in many similar ways as you did the Israelites so long ago. Would you shape us to be a holy people who worships you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So picking up in our journey through Exodus, we are seeing that God's people are still at Mount Sinai. In fact, they will be encamped at Mount Sinai for the rest of this book of Exodus. They have received God's commands. They've received his laws, right? They are a newly formed group of people, a nation. God is, is forming a nation out of these people. And this nation, uh, Israel, should be a testimony, should be a witness to the rest of the world to show them how to love the one true God, how to worship him and how to live daily and practically for him, they should be exemplifying that to the rest of the world. And they should also love each other as God loves them. So God has explained these things to them. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He's given them what we saw last week called the Book of the Covenant, right? And so God, this whole time, though, has been at the top of Mount Sinai, right? His presence has come down to earth and he is residing temporarily and currently on the top of this mountain. And only Moses, right? Only Moses has been able to enter into the Lord's presence. But now everything is about to change here in this story we see today. God is going to come down the mountain. Did you hear that? God himself is going to come down the mountain to live with and among the Israelites. 
Now, what in the world is that going to look like? Well, let's see. Exodus 25, we'll start in verse 8 and 9. God speaking to Moses says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Now, if you watch any of these, you know, home shows on HGTV, right, there's lots of planning that goes into the design and the blueprint and all the things and the construction. And that's a kind of a, an ancient version of what we're about to see. Except this house, this structure that is being built is for God himself. So can you imagine, right? Let's see what, the, what this is going to look like. I mean, this is remarkable, though, just in the fact that God is coming down to live in the midst of these people, right? Up until now, because of God's holiness, there have been very strict parameters around this mountain where the Israelites are encamped on the bottom, right? Sinful creatures cannot enter into the presence of a perfectly holy God. We've been seeing that theme, haven't we, in the last couple of weeks, in these last few stories? But now, this, this is a game changer. God tells Moses he is coming down to them. He wants to do this. God Almighty, perfect and holy, sovereign with all the power of the universe, right? Who holds this universe together. God himself wants to live among his people, among their tents in this wilderness. That's amazing. That's remarkable. He wants to have a relationship with them. But there still has to be parameters. Right? Anybody can't just walk up into the presence of God. Sinful creatures cannot get even close to him. So in chapters 25 through 30, what we see is God giving instructions to Moses about what this new house, that will, what it will look like and how it's going to function. What's the purpose of it? And so this house for God, this structure, is called the tabernacle. It's a tent, if you will. So we have a picture on the screen for you. This is just a simple illustration. You can see this is what the tabernacle looked like. So the tabernacle, this tent, would be God's temporary dwelling place. And it, had, uh, it was basically divided into two rooms, all right? So you have the holy place, where you would enter into the tabernacle and only priests could enter into the holy place. But then when you go further into the room, you'll see there, and it's cut in half, right? So you can see inside, but there is a, there's a veil or a curtain, right? There's a really big, thick curtain that would stretch, that would stretch across the whole tabernacle and separate what we call the holy place, right, or the living room, if you will, right, from the most holy place, right? And that would be where only one priest could enter once a year. And then around the tabernacle, uh, on the outside was a courtyard that was fenced in. So altogether, it would look something like this. So there's the fence that is around the tabernacle, and you can see the courtyard. There's an altar to make sacrifices to God there in the courtyard. There's a basin for washing, uh, for purity. And so there's all of these things that God is giving instructions about. 
So this would be God's dwelling place. And God continues to give instructions to Moses about not only the structure of this, but also the furniture that's going to go inside of this. All right, so Exodus 25, verse 10, look at this. God says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. All right, so this is called the Ark of the Covenant, we refer to this as, and here's an illustration of that. All right, so whatever images you have from Indiana Jones, just block them out of your mind, okay? Don't let that, don't get your theology, please, from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Just, that's not it, all right? So this is probably something that it would have looked like, and this is a very sacred and important piece of furniture, the most important, in fact, God gives Moses the details about this ark. Look at this in verses 13 and 14. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Now that's significant because what that tells us is this is meant to be mobile. This is a mobile home, if you will, right? This is a home that can move. This is not a permanent location. This is temporary, and this is emphasizing that Israel will be on the move. Now, verse 17 and 18 tells us, God continues to give instructions about the, specifically the Ark of the Covenant. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim, which are heavenly creatures, similar to an angel, if you can picture that, right? You just saw it on the screen. Of gold, of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. All right, so the mercy seat, all right, it's not like a chair. That's the lid, essentially. That's the lid to the box known as the Ark of the Covenant, all right? And those two cherubim you saw are facing each other with their wings spread toward one another, all right? Now, look at this. Why is this important? You're like, Pastor Andrew, what in the world? You know, what are we talking about? What is all of this? This is highly important, more than you would ever think. Look at this, verse 21 and 22. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Listen to this. God tells Moses, here's the significance, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. I want to be very clear, this is not just another piece of nice furniture. This is a sacred item because not only will the stone tablets that God gives Moses go inside of these, but it will also be where God himself manifests his presence. He says, this is where I'm going to meet with my people, at least the priest who is allowed into this inner room. I will meet with this priest this is where I will speak. This is the relationship, the only way that the people can even have any kind of ongoing consistency and relationship with a holy God is going to be in his presence 
between these two cherubim speaking to the priest. That's it. Let's jump down to chapter 26, verses 31 through 34. A little bit more about this curtain that I described, as you saw in the illustration. And you shall make a veil, a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate the for you, the veil shall separate, separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Again, what is the significance of all of this structure, this furniture, the placing of it in God's house? The ark belongs in the most holy place of the tabernacle where God's presence will dwell. But what does that remind us of that we just have been talking about these last couple of weeks? The top of the mountain. Remember? On the top of the mountain was God's presence. And who was the only person allowed to go there? Moses. Just him. So that's the most holy place now. And the other room outside the curtain, the holy place, what would that be? Well, that would be kind of like halfway up the mountain. Remember they had the meal the elders of Israel who represented the nation, and Moses and Aaron and his sons, right? They got together partially up the mountain, saw a partial view of God, and got to eat in his presence in that form. That's kind of like the most holy place. And inside this room called the holy place would be a table for bread, and a lampstand was there. And an altar for incense, burning incense would be in that room. So three more pieces of furniture, table for bread, right? the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And then in the courtyard outside, that's like, guess what? Outside the mountain, right? The people couldn't even touch the mountain because of their sin, because they're unholy. They're not clean. And so guess what? You can't even come into the tabernacle. In the courtyard would be similar to the people having to stay out and off of the mountain. But there's a basin there, a bronze basin for washing, for cleansing, and a bronze altar for making blood sacrifices to God. But how will the tabernacle be used and who can really do this? Well, more detail, Exodus 28 verse 1, look at this. God says, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him. From among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. Right, so only, only these men would be qualified to enter into this structure, God's house, the tabernacle, because they had been chosen by God and consecrated to him to represent the rest of the nation. That's their job, to represent the people. And God gives many details about their duties to Moses, but he also instructs Moses about their clothing. Now, this is interesting. Look at this on the screen. You'll see a picture of the priest's clothes, all right? And I know you can't probably see that super well, but their clothing is very symbolic, all right? It's not random. 
it shows that they represent the people before a holy God. Every single part of this wardrobe is highly significant, right? The priest is the bridge between God and the people. So notice the breast piece, if you can see that on the chest, it has 12 different stones, all right? And look at verse 21 of chapter 28. It says, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. All right, verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So what is all this about? What this says is that the names of Israel will be engraved, the 12 tribes of Israel will be engraved on these 12 stones over Aaron's heart. And so when he goes into this tabernacle to meet with a holy God, he is representing 2 million plus people who are, who are encamped in the largest camp you've ever seen around Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula. He is representing this people. Mind you, there are probably millions of people living already all around the world at this point in human history. But these are God's people that he has chosen to represent him to the rest of the world. But even themselves as God's chosen people cannot approach a holy God. Aaron, bearing their names on his chest, must go to God and plead with God that these people can continue to obey him and love him, that God would forgive them of their sins. This was the only way to approach a holy God. So we know the priest represents the people. What does he do? Well, look at this, chapter 29, verse 38 and 39. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Every morning, the priest would wake up and sacrifice a lamb on the altar. Every night, the priest would sacrifice another lamb on the altar. They would go to bed, they would wake up in the morning, and they would sacrifice another lamb in the morning. They would wait until twilight at night and sacrifice another lamb at night. They would go to bed and wake up the next morning and do the same thing over and over and over every single day. Because our sin is too great. The penalty of sin is death. And so a sacrifice must be made. The only way to be rescued from the penalty of offending a holy God by rejecting his design for your life, for this world, by sinning against him and saying, Lord, what you have is not good enough. Who you are is not good enough. Your authority over my life is not good enough. I will answer to myself. I will live the way I want. I will attach my heart to the passions of this world before I attach it to you. All of the sins we've ever committed in our lives deserve a death penalty for, a, for offending the creator of the universe. Oh, that is more than fair. 
He is a just and holy God who does not entertain the thought of sin. He is not okay with us sinning against him and against each other. He does not tolerate it. And so the penalty for this rebellious nature in us is death and only death can suffice to pay the penalty for this. What is God teaching his people? The death does not have to be you. The sacrifice of this lamb every morning, every night, the lamb can die in your place. Its blood can cover you and you can be forgiven from a holy God and his wrath against all sin. But do you see what's happening? God is moving closer to his people. He now lives in their neighborhood. But there's still these boundaries. Do you see that? These boundaries, boundaries, parameters, rules, limitations, restrictions, all around. In other words, the one word to sum it up, there's still separation. We still see the compassion of God nonetheless. Sin must be atoned for, but we see the compassion of God for his people. We see that he so desires to live with them that he is constructing a way for it to be possible even though they are utterly sinful. His desire to teach them about himself and show them how to love him, how to worship him, how to reflect that love to one another, God is slowly, patiently working with these sinful people. He loves them. He wants them. He wants them for himself. He wants them to know him. He wants them to not just try really hard to be good people. No, he wants them to admit that they can't be good people and to fully, completely rely on who he is and the sacrifice in their place. It's a very gracious thing of God to do this. He summarizes it himself in Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. What does God say? He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know. They're not going to have to guess about this. They're not going to have to go to sleep wondering if God loves them, if he's going to provide. They shall know, God says, that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God, he says. If you learn nothing else today about the tabernacle, maybe you didn't think you were going to get that kind of sermon today with about structure and furniture. <laughs> but let me say this. If you don't learn anything else, then learn this. This is the whole story of the Bible. The tabernacle is really a microcosm of the entire biblical storyline. It's This is the gospel. The tabernacle teaches us that God desires a relationship with us. And guess what? Jesus is the only way for that to happen. 
God desires to know you and Jesus is the only possible way that you can have a real, true relationship with the one who created you, who made you. What does that mean? What is the, how does the tabernacle teach us this? You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies in the world today that perhaps gets overlooked too often is when someone or a group of people are displaced from their home. You know, often that's due to international conflict or war. So currently we think of the war in Ukraine. We think of the Ukrainians who have been displaced from their homes and just had to leave and had to flee to other countries as as refugees. We think about natural disasters. You know, the hurricane that was in South Florida recently. People being displaced from their homes or perhaps wildfires out on the West Coast. Maybe even some of you in here today have been displaced from your home at some point in your life. It's really a true tragedy because you are being dislocated from your entire life, everything you know. The comfort, the peace, the security of your own home. And all you're left with is fear, uncertainty. But in many ways, the entire story of the Bible is a story about displacement. And that story affects every single one of us. Author Tim Chester says, Deep in the heart of every person is a longing for home. This reflects the human story. Humanity suffers a deep sense of dislocation. We feel homeless. That's because we were cast out of our first home. And what he's referring to here is the Garden of Eden. Do you know how true that is? Do you know that when God created this world, there was no sin, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there was no anger, there was nothing bad. Everything that God creates is good. In fact, he created a home for humans to live with him and enjoy living with him. In the Garden of Eden in the Middle East so long ago, God created the first humans and he gave them every single thing they could ever imagine or want or need. It was their home and God lived with them. They could talk to him. They could speak to him. But the first humans, they rebelled against him. They didn't want to answer to anyone else except themselves. And so they rejected what God, his good gifts, the good design, the good things he had given them. They basically said, that's not good enough for me. I think I know a better way. And so thanks, God. See you later. I'm going to do my own thing. And this sin, this sin that became a reality in the created world affected everything. It corrupted the human heart. It corrupted the natural world. The whole world now was living under a curse. But the worst thing that it did was it banished Adam and Eve from the presence of this home, this sanctuary of a garden, you could say. You know that only happened in the third chapter of the entire Bible? From the very beginning, 
God's beautiful design was thrown off course. It was disrupted. T.D. Alexander says the earth is designed to be a divine residence. Genesis assumes that the earth will be God's dwelling place. But after sin, the complex story that follows, in other words, the rest of the Bible, centers on how the earth can once more become a dwelling place shared by God and humanity. Now let's be clear. You see, God is not the one displaced. As we read about God coming down the mountain and needing this house to live in, I want you to understand, He is not the one displaced from His home. The whole earth belongs to God. We are the ones without a home. We are the ones banished from His presence forever. But what we see here in Exodus is a God who pursues a displaced people. He is pursuing them. But the tabernacle, it's temporary, right? It's portable. They're going to be moving around in that wilderness. But one day, the presence of God would change. There would be a solid structure built in Jerusalem called a temple. That temple would mirror the tabernacle. It would have a holy place. It would have a most holy place with an even greater, larger, more giant curtain separating the holy place from the presence of God in the most holy place where the same Ark of the Covenant would sit, where God would speak to one priest once a year as he atoned for the sins of the people. But then, many years later, God would do something even more amazing and miraculous. God himself, God himself would become a human. He would still be fully God, but he would also be fully man. John 1.14 tells us, And the Word, the Word of God, referring to Jesus himself, became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. You see, the tabernacle served its purpose for the Israelites, but it wasn't enough. It was pointing to humanity's need for what? A final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. A final priest to end the need for a priest to give his own life as that final sacrifice. Jesus paid the penalty of sin once and for all. Jesus is the final priest. He is the final sacrifice. He fulfills all the actions that we read about today. That's why they're so highly important. All of those things that we read about in the tabernacle, Jesus fulfills all of those things. He is the new tabernacle, so to speak. He is the priest who died in your place on the altar of the cross. And that was the death. Remember, sin requires the penalty of death. That was the death penalty that you and I deserved. But he died in our place for us. And what does that do? That opens access now to God directly. We do not need to go through a priest in a confessional booth. We go through Jesus himself. He is our great high priest. We don't have to wander through this world attaching ourselves to uh, this world as if it's our permanent home. We know now that we have a better home waiting for us. Because we have access directly to God. That's exactly what happened in Mark 15. 
Verse 37 and 38, look at this. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what happened? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And what happened? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, who did the tearing? God himself did the tearing of this giant curtain. He tore it in half from top to bottom, signaling that now there is direct access for all who would come to Jesus Christ in faith. That is salvation, and now you are saved by his grace through faith in what he has done for you. He is the priest who laid himself on the altar. You don't have to die, and you get to know God forever. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 tells us about how, how this is so beautiful. Look at this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what do we get to do now? We don't have to stand back. We don't have to stand back. No, we can run to God. His arms are open wide for you, saying, come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, and I will be your father forever. God is open to us now. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus our hearts now are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All of these things used to happen in the tabernacle and now all of these things are true for you because of what Jesus has done. So God's presence, as we see throughout the Bible, has what, what, what do we see? It's progressively gotten more amazing. It's gotten more personal, right? It's led from a, a tent in a wilderness to a temple in a city to what? Jesus, God himself, dwelling among the people. Would you believe me if I said it got even better? Because if you belong to Christ, guess what? Now he lives in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us, do you not know that you, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? When God sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people after, he ascend, when, after Jesus ascended to, to heaven, right? He sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit now, it lives within the soul, the heart of people. His people who have put their faith in him. The Holy Spirit, God himself, lives in you. You are the temple. Individually, that's true. And guess what? Collectively, it's true as well as a church. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, and, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. How does God manifest his presence on earth today? Through us. Through us, church. And how amazing is that? How often do you really grasp that and think about that? How is God choosing to represent and manifest his presence on the earth today? 
through you. If you belong to Christ, do you wake up every day thinking about that? What an honor, what a privilege that is for us. That's something we should take seriously. We house God. Maybe you don't think of your life that way. Maybe you wake up every morning and you don't really think like God lives in me today and that's how he's choosing to represent himself to everybody I'm going to come in contact with. Maybe we don't think about that because that seems like too great a burden for us to bear. Maybe it seems too challenging. And so we just kind of ignore that thought, ignore that truth because we don't want to live up to the standard that that requires. But there's help. Still, it's not about you. It's about what God is doing through you. His presence is with you and in you. His Holy Spirit is there leading you and guiding you. And so, yes, we obey the Lord because we want to represent him well, but keep coming back to the gospel, to the sacrifice on the altar. You're not obeying God now as a Christian to convince him to love you. You're obeying him because he already has loved you. So our obedience to God is not to earn his favor or so that we can keep our salvation. Our obedience to God is simply an overflow of our gratitude and our thankfulness of who he is and how he has loved us completely. That's why we obey. Not to earn salvation, but because we have salvation. Like the tabernacle. We are living in a temporary dwelling, though, this body. So don't cling too closely. Don't cling too closely to this temporary life when so much more is in store for you. Use what you have been given in the world you live in now to point people to the better world, to the way, the way of Christ. You don't have to keep trying to atone for your own sin. Maybe some of you, Maybe some of you, you know, what can you learn from the tabernacle? Maybe you need to learn this. You wake up every morning and you immediately start trying to make sacrifices. And what I mean, what I mean is just like the priests, when they woke up every morning and sacrificed a lamb, and then every night before they went to bed, they sacrificed a lamb. And so maybe in your life, what you need to learn from the tabernacle is that you don't have to wake up every day thinking, I have to perform, I have to perform, I have to excel, I have to do these things to convince God that I'm worthy, to convince the people in my life that I'm respectable or that I'm worthy. I have to keep doing every morning and every night. And then it's exhausting. It's exhausting and then it drives anxiety levels so high when we think that everything around us revolves around us and us performing in front of people and making things better and doing things right. Man, what an exhausting way to live. And let me tell you that the gospel teaches you that one sacrifice has been made for you forever. One. So you, you don't have to keep making that sacrifice, that effort, that performance every day and every night. The one sacrifice has done it for you. So rest in his work. Rest in his excellence. Rest in his performance on your behalf. And watch the anxiety begin to melt away. Watch the fear begin to slowly melt away as you rest in the goodness of who God is and what he has in store for you, not in what you can try to craft or build. It's a different way of living, isn't it? Rest in the mercies of God 
that he says are new every morning. God living in us now is moving us to live with him forever. God came to live with us on earth so that we could one day live with him in heaven. Again, T.D. Alexander says, this is really good, listen to this. Whereas Genesis presents the earth as a potential building site. (laughs) That's really what Genesis is telling us, right? There's potential for this, this globe, right, known as earth, this planet, to be a wonderful, wonderful construction site for the glory of God. Whereas Genesis presents the earth as a potential building site, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which goes into the future, something we have not seen yet, Revelation describes a finished city. The new Jerusalem brings to fulfillment what began in the Garden of Eden. When John says in Revelation 21, 22, that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, he says, this suggests that the whole city is a most holy place. In his holy city, no barriers exist between God and the human population. As priestly royals, every human inhabitant is able to see God's face. In other words, what started in the Garden of Eden, God has, will continue this construction project. In spite of humanity's rebellion and sin, God will finish his building project. The tabernacle was a great starter in that process. The temple was wonderful. And then Jesus himself became present on earth and did what we could never do for ourselves and then gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside his people known as the church. And here we are today awaiting the finished completed building project, a holy city where we will reside with God forever with no barriers. Revelation 21, two through five describes this city. John says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man as it was always intended to be. Now, finally, in our future, this is what we have to look forward to. It will happen. It will be completed. What started once will be finally completed. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you feel spiritually displaced today. We all have those moments, okay? We all have these moments in our days where we just feel displaced, spiritually speaking, that maybe we're still separated from God or maybe 
we just know that there's particular sins that we're struggling with and we're just not really ready to truly give them up and confess them to the Lord and walk in obedience in that particular area of your life. We have these moments, we have these feelings regularly of displacement. That longing we feel to belong, to have peace and security in our hearts and our minds. But you know what that's doing? It's pointing us to our true need, isn't it? For a permanent home with a permanent relationship. And if you know Jesus today, you already have that. You already have that. You have a permanent home and you do have a permanent Father, God, who loves you unconditionally because your sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're not there yet completely, are we? To heaven, I mean, the new Jerusalem, the city we just read. But even now, we have God living in us. And so what are we telling the rest of the world? In our habits, our schedules, our priorities, our passions, our desires, our obedience to a holy God, what are we voicing to the world? There is a better city yet to come. Let's live for that city. Let's live for that kingdom. I want us to spend some time in prayer today as we think about this new city. As we think about the new Jerusalem that one day we all will live in if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I want to speak to you briefly if you don't. If you're not sure if you have a real relationship with God, if you can enter directly into his access because of what Christ has done, listen, salvation is really, it's just a, it's a new posture. It's a new turning. It's turning away from your sin and really yourself, trusting yourself to wake up every morning and make the sacrifices that are needed to please God. It's turning away from that performance mentality, that obsession with yourself and thinking that you are the ultimate authority of your life. It's just turning away from that sinful mindset and pattern of life to Christ and saying, Jesus, I cannot. I cannot do all these things, but you can and you have. I want to love you. I want to know you forever. I want access to you and I want to live in your kingdom forever with a holy God. It's a turning. Do you see that? It's a posture. It's a faith. It's a belief. It's a confession. You can make that confession today. And if you do know the Lord and you still feel that sense of displacement in your life, I encourage you, get in the gr ground yourself in truth. Get in the word of God. The word became flesh to speak and communicate to you. Listen to his words. Don't neglect time with the Lord during the week. Don't neglect time coming to church and worshiping and to community group. Surround yourself with the goodness and the truth of God in all those different forms. And watch him shape you. Watch him mold you into the person he created you to be. Enjoy the home you have the eternal home that you live for now. So let's spend some time in prayer today about these things. And first, we, before I pray, I want to say if you're a guest with us today, again, we're so glad uh, that you are here. Thank you for worshiping with us today. 
Um, we're about to move into our annual budget presentation. And so it's going to be short and sweet, I promise. But I understand if you need to leave, that's totally fine. Please feel free uh, to slip out as I'm praying. It's, it's not a big deal, I promise. Um, but I do ask the rest of our attenders and members of Kernan, if you would stick around um, to listen, it'll be just five minutes. But let me go ahead and pray. Confess to the Lord now. If you have that feeling of displacement in your life, in your heart, say, Jesus, let me turn away from attaching myself to this permanent home and let me attach myself to your, I'm sorry, to this temporary home and let me attach myself to your permanent home. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that now. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that you are the final priest, the final sacrifice once and for all. Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us for where we try to be the priest who has to make the sacrifice and perform and do all these things to get you to love us somehow, Lord. Forgive us for this twisted mindset that we somehow can earn our salvation. Lord Jesus, as you taught the Israelites then, would you teach us now that yes, Sacrifice must happen, but Jesus, you are the final sacrifice. So let us rest in you. Let us turn to you daily and remember the gospel. Preach it to ourselves, Lord. Let us not neglect to spend time in your word. Let us not neglect to come together as a church and worship and spend time in community together, Lord. We need these fellowships of grace. We need the truth in our hearts. We need our Christian brothers and sisters alongside us. Lord, we need these things, and you've given us these great, beautiful gifts. Lord, let us turn to these things. Let us turn to you for that sense of belonging, to know that we have a permanent home forever waiting for us. Thank you, Jesus, for the full assurance of faith you give us, the direct access to you, to God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have done in our lives. Let us live out of gratitude and thankfulness in obedience to your word each day. Let us know we have a home that we belong to. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.